the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 13, The Hairdresser's Cometh. Last week, we left off with the death of the king Ra-Nefereth, a short-lived successor to his father Nefer-Ir-Kare. Ra-Nefereth, or Nefer-Ephre, did not reign long enough to leave any lasting impression on the Egyptian cultural landscape. His statuary, reveals him to be something of a fresh-faced youth, round in the cheek and smiling in an innocent manner. He bears all the hallmarks of a young, vigorous king, and had he lived longer, he would probably have made much more of an impact on our story. Sadly, it was not to be, and the king ruled for just two years, possibly three. His pyramid never got past the first foundation layer of stone, and was made functional by his successor resulting in a large, square mustaba tomb. The adjacent mortuary temple, however, was totally finished, and was operational for several decades after this king's reign. Indeed, as we will see next week, the mortuary temple of Ra-Nefereth is among the greatest sources of knowledge for temple functions during the 5th dynasty, thanks to a magnificent papyrus archive discovered in the late 20th century. The temple and pyramid were completed in haste by Ra-Nefereth's younger brother Niusere, who also had to finish the monuments of their mutual father Nefer-Ir-Kare. A short-lived king could cause quite the disruption in Egyptian life, as the act of burying one's father and completing their funerary monument was an integral element of the succession ritual. For Niusere, the problem was compounded by the fact that Nefer-Ir-Kare's pyramid complex was not yet completed when the old king died, and having to put the finishing touches on both this monument and the tomb of Ra-Nefereth meant that Neusere's own tomb did not get underway for several years after his accession. Fortunately, the new king could afford to wait. When he came to the throne, Neusere was even younger than his brother Ra-Nefereth, and wound up reigning for some 30 years. Of course, in his early years, the young king did not have any genuine authority, despite his symbolic power. The Egyptian administration was by this point a complex organisation, with many judicial, administrative and priestly titles being wielded by various members of the extended royal family. From the Chati, or vizier, down to the lowest Hemnecho priest, the dynastic organisation which the Old Kingdom rulers presided over was a marvel of bureaucratic organisation for the time. Running this apparatus was the work for an experienced and educated adult. Niusere did not fit this job description at all. But his mother did. The mother of Niusere was a woman named Kenti Kaus II, probably a third generation relative of the original Kenti Kaus, for whom the governance of Egypt had been as much an ideological duty as it was an opportunity for power. Kenti Kaus II, like her namesake, did not rule Egypt in her own name, but representations of the queen in her tomb show her wearing the vulture crown and uraeus adornment also borne by her predecessor. Similarly, her title of Mut Nesut Biti Nesut Biti parallels that of Kenti Kaus I. As I have mentioned earlier, Neusere was the younger brother of Ra-Nefereth, both of whom were the sons of Nefer-Ir-Kare and Kentikaus. 
Unlike Kentikaus I, for whom the title is ambiguous enough to stimulate plenty of debate over its exact meaning, for Kentikaus II, we can be fairly sure that the title refers to her two royal sons. That being said, the circumstances of Kentikaus II's rise to power are sufficiently well known to show that in her lifetime she wielded influence equal to that of her earlier namesake, and certainly comparable with the authority of a king. She was aided in her rule by the government apparatus which I mentioned before. Indeed, the reign of Niusere is especially notable for being the time in Egyptian history at which the nobles and administration begin to appear more visibly in both the archaeological and literary record. Minor officials and priests have appeared in earlier periods and reigns, but their existence is so ephemeral and so poorly recorded that we can rarely say much about them beyond their name and a few titles. In the reign of Niusere, we begin to see the officials, some of whom are not even direct relatives of the king, take on positions of supreme authority and power. The most famous of these is a man named Ta Shepses. His name means Ta is noble, referring to the god, and from this we can assume that the man probably came from Memphis or a nearby town. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, Ta was the patron deity of the capital city, and his great temple was located there, being one of the primary cult centres in all Egypt at the time. Ta Shepses came from wealthy but obscure origins, and emerged on the political scene sometime during the reign of Nefer-ir-Kare. We don't know exactly when he came to prominence, or on what terms, but by backdating from the period of Niusere, when his master Batum was commissioned, we can guess that he probably entered the court as a minor official sometime in Nefer-ir-Kare's reign. Tarshipses eventually attained the rank of vizier, as well as the titles of lector priest, semer wa or sole companion, overseer of all works of the king, ornament of the king, and hairdresser. Now you may be wondering why, among such august and noble titles as vizier or overseer, why would Tarshipses take the trouble to record himself as a hairdresser? The answer lies in the nature of such roles when you consider them in relation to the Egyptian king. A hairdresser needs to touch the physical body of the king in order to do his job, and when he does this, he is essentially touching a god incarnate. Not just anyone can do this, they must be trustworthy enough to be near the king while holding sharp instruments, and at the same time show enough skill and deference to elegantly groom the ruler so that he fits the image of a god in every respect. Think of it as being a hairdresser to the stars, only on a much more intense level, and you probably have some idea. Besides his job as hairdresser and manicurist, Tarshipses mostly filled actual administrative roles. One wonders why the king decided to start giving bureaucratic titles to a man whose previous qualifications mostly involved grooming, but I assume that Tarshipses started his higher career with a position like semerwa or sole companion. Though we do not know the exact functions of this title during the 5th dynasty, it seems reasonable to guess that a companion remained close to the king at the royal court. They would have been privy 
to many of the daily concerns brought before the king, and interacted extensively with the administrative officials of the court. It would be a good stepping stone on the road to achieving both economic and administrative literacy, both of which were imperative for the country's continued stability. Of course, actual literacy was also very important, and Tarshepsis must have learned hieroglyphs at some point during his early career if he wanted to attain the highest posts in the land. I will discuss the importance of writing from a psychological and social standpoint next week, but suffice it to say that the Egyptians held writing to be more than simple words and numbers. Hieroglyphs had an intrinsic magic for these people, and to be literate was to be in communion with the divine nature of the cosmos. In order to adequately serve as a vizier, or as overseer of works, I would suggest that Tarshepsis was at the very least basically literate, though he certainly would have relied on scribes for the majority of his document writing. Over the course of his career, which lasted approximately three decades, Tarshepsis acquired the highest offices he could possibly attain without being the king himself. As a reward for his service, and perhaps to facilitate his entry to the highest offices, King Neusere gave Tarshepsis the right to marry one of his daughters, Ka Merer Nebti. Since the king was so young when he came to power, no daughter of his would have been old enough to marry and bear children for at least the first 15 or so years of his reign. By this point, Tarshepsis would probably have reached a high office, and we can suggest fairly confidently that the marriage to Ka Merer Nebti was a reward for great service as much as an entry point to the title of vizier. It certainly paid dividends, both for Tarshepsis' career and his family life. The couple had five children, and the hairdresser went on to commission the largest and most elaborate tomb built for an official up to this point. Around his tenth year on the throne, perhaps partly to celebrate the anniversary, Neusere gave permission for Tarshepsis to have a tomb built at Abu Sir, very near to the king's own pyramid. A simple mastaba in its first stages, the tomb soon grew to an elaborate construction that mimicked the architecture of a palace and a temple. Large columns, designed to look like closed lotus flowers, were placed in the entryway. They led into a series of intimate chambers, which eventually turned left and opened out onto a very large square courtyard, ringed with columns. The design of this section is elaborate, and reflects the latest stages of the tomb's construction. The tomb itself is enormous by standards of earlier mastabas, and is so extravagant you would be forgiven for thinking that a prince or princess was buried here. Indeed, Tarshepsis mastaba tomb is actually larger than those of princes and princesses buried nearby. The tomb replicates what we suspect many small cult chapels and temples of the Old Kingdom may have looked like. The columned courtyards would certainly be common at the time, as would the enclosed sanctums and offering rooms of the inner area. The enormous facades and grand porticos of Karnak, which are now synonymous with the idea of Egyptian temple building, only began to appear in the New Kingdom. At the time of Tarshepsis, Enormous temples are unknown, and though the Temple of Tar at Memphis may have been quite large, 
nothing survives to indicate that it was anything near as large as later cult centres. Tarshipses Mastaba also has an additional feature that really makes it stand out from others of the time, and indeed, from most non-royal tombs full stop. Similar to the royal pyramids of Giza, and the Sun Temple of Neusere, which would have been under construction at the time, the Mastaba of Tarshipses features an area designed for the burial of a ship. Now we discussed the boat burials of Khufu way back in episode 7, when the king placed large wooden ships in specially dug pits to provide him with a celestial conveyance in the next realm. The ships were intended as replicas of the sun god Ray's own ship, which sailed across the sky during the day and through the underworld at night. Tarshepses Mastaba is the only monument not built for a king that has one of these boat pits added on. The intention, of course, was not for Tarshepses to join the king in the sky, but rather to give him prominence in the afterlife above that of the ordinary man. It tells us that besides Neusere and his mother Kentikaus II, Tarshepses may have been considered the most important man in the kingdom. Not bad for a hairdresser from Memphis. Whether he was a great man in the historical tradition or not is unfortunately not something we can ever determine during the Old Kingdom. From the New Kingdom onwards, we gain enough of a sense of rulers and their personalities and ideologies to make value judgments on whether a ruler or an official was a great person. Unfortunately, in the Old Kingdom, we just know too little of their lives and too little of what they believed around the world around them to get a handle on how they should be judged. But we can take a stab at it. Tarshepses lived and governed in the shadow of a long reigning monarch and his mother. The monarch, Neusere, was heir to a tradition already many centuries old, a tradition that mandated each ruler to uphold the cosmic order and push back the tides of chaos that threatened to engulf creation in a moment of weakness. Imagine growing up in a world where every day you are reminded that there is a man living either just up the road or just up the river, for whom every day is a matter of preserving reality itself. Not just Egypt, not just the planet Earth, but the very fabric and nature of the cosmos. How would that feel? How would you perceive your place within that world, knowing that there is a mortal man who is simultaneously immortal and supremely powerful, one that sits on a throne established by his father before him, and his father before him, and his father before him, all the way back to the day when gods themselves ruled on earth and shattered the forces of chaos. If this sounds like the workings of a dime a dozen fantasy novel, now you know where the basic fundamentals of those fantasies come from. Now imagine that you, a person with no particularly impressive pedigree or knowledge, are chosen by virtue of your family, your friendliness, trustworthiness, or loyalty in general, to wait upon the king and make sure that he is properly groomed at all times. When this king dies, you take over the same duties for his son, a mere youth, but still the incarnation of the most awesomely powerful and fundamental principle that there is, kingship. 
So day in, day out, you groom the king and take care of his needs. Then, one day, he summons you to tell you that you will henceforth act not only as a courtier and companion, but as an official trusted to govern one of the many important sectors of the royal government. From then on, it's just one step up the ladder after another, until you serve as the highest official in the land, and, just to sweeten the deal, the king actually lets you marry one of his own daughters. Talk about doing well for yourself. I think it is fair to say that like Imhotep or Metjen, Tarshepses is one of those few men in the Egyptian historical record who step forward from the shadow of their royal patrons and demand our attention in their own right. In that respect, we might refer to Tarshepses as one of the earliest great men in Egyptian history. Having said that, I have some issues with the historical approach that puts too much emphasis on great men, at the expense of wider social movements and issues. For starters, of course, it rather neglects the fundamental role of women in world history. Secondly, it ignores the underlying psychological and social movements which tend to push so-called great men into the limelight and into the annals of history. That is to say, a man like Tarshepses probably strove mightily for his success, and deserved a lot of it. But he was also the benefactor of a patron with power unlike any other, and his ability to move into the royal family at all was the result of a social trend that had been in development ever since the 4th dynasty. Since we discussed the economy of Egypt back in episode 8, the wealthy, non-royal families like Metjen had been quietly going about their business. The royal family continued to call upon them for services and reward them appropriately when they fulfilled their obligations to the crown. But there was usually a limit to how far these non-royal family members could advance in the social hierarchy, and it certainly stopped well before the title of vizier. In fact, I would suggest that when Tarshepses stepped beyond the role of, say, companion, and into a position like overseer of all the royal works, then he had already stepped past the social line and become a man of unprecedented status. Of course, people closely related to the king, down to about the level of, say, second cousin, had always had priority for fulfilment of top government positions. As the fifth dynasty progressed, however, the door to high office was slowly opened a little wider and a little wider, until there was just enough space for a man like Tarshepses to step through, at the king's invitation, of course. So is Tarshepses the first great man to emerge within the fifth dynasty narrative? Or is he simply the first whose tomb has survived in such excellent detail to reveal his high status? I would suggest that he is one of the earliest great men, but not in the traditional sense of a man who changed his world or did great things. Tarshepses is a great man by accident, for it was his ascension under Neusere that is the earliest known example of its kind. It may have happened earlier, or he may have been the first. Until we know for certain, we can never make a judgment either way. Likewise, because he did not record his accomplishments in his tomb, he remains visible only as a collection of titles and epithets rather than a man of action worthy of remembrance. 
Tashebses was not alone in his role as hairdresser and manicurist. There were two other men who served in this role during Neusere's reign, probably after their colleague went on to higher office. Their names were Ni Ankh Kunum and Kunum Hotep, meaning one who possesses the life of Kunum, and Kunum is satisfied. They are also Egypt's earliest known homosexual couple. Ni Ankh Kunum and Kunum Hotep were buried together in a magnificent tomb at Saqqara. On the walls of the tomb, they are represented embracing, holding hands, and sitting together before offering bearers, while one places his arm around the other. They laid out instructions on the wall of their tomb that their families, wives, children, parents, were not to interfere with their dual burial, in much the same way that heterosexual married couples presented their wishes in their own tombs. Now, there is some debate over the nature of these men's relationship, with some historians arguing for the two being brothers. I don't subscribe to this argument, and I'll tell you why. The representation of the two men features many aspects of a gendered representation. That is to say, one of these men is often represented in a position or performing an action usually associated with a wife. I don't mean sexual acts or anything of that nature. What I mean is that Kunum Hotep is often shown being led by Niankunum by the hand, in the manner usually occupied by a husband leading his wife. Likewise, he is depicted smelling a lotus flower, the only example from before the New Kingdom in which a man does this. Traditionally, lotus flowers are always seen in the hands of women. Niank Kunum sits before Kunum Hotep in the offering scene, while the latter places his arm around the other in a gesture usually performed by the wife or goddess attending to a man. All the imagery thus far represents a relationship in which Ni Ankh Kunum treats his friend much like a wife. In another relief, which is a banquet scene, the wife of Ni Ankh Kunum has been erased from the finished product and plastered over. This was done before the tomb was completed, suggesting that the owners deliberately had the scene changed to show only the two of them at the banquet. At the other end of the table, Kunum Hotep sits and there wasn't even space for his own wife to be depicted at all. Beneath the banquet scene, a group of musicians play, and the conductor tells them to play the song about the two divine brothers. This is a reference to the myth of Horus and Seth, which I mentioned way back in episode 2 as a myth evolving out of the political conflict between Kasa Kemwe and Peribsen. The myth remained a popular one throughout Egyptian history, and included a section which I rather glossed over in my more political reading of the tale. Part of the Horus and Seth myth was the sexual interaction between the two protagonists. In one version of the tale, Horus is essentially raped by Seth after a banquet, for which he takes Seth to court. But in another much earlier version, Horus and Seth copulate together willingly. Sexual acts aside, 
The reference to a song about the two divine brothers probably refers somewhat humorously to this myth, and more specifically, to this part of the myth. Other images of the couple show them embracing face to face, their noses touching, and the knots of their belts touching as well. Through such imagery, the nature of their relationship is conveyed subtextually. In other words, what we have here is the loving relationship between two men who represented themselves in the manner of a husband and wife couple. Critics of this representation are not necessarily homophobic, and we shouldn't dismiss their conclusions outright. Indeed, Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep are often referred to by the Egyptian word Sen, which is traditionally translated as brother. However, and this is very important, translating this word Sen as brother is a very simplified form which does not always carry the sibling connotations we use today. The word Sen is derived from the word for two, and in that sense, the word actually conveys the idea of the individuals being alternates of each other. The idea is far more complex than simple brother, and carries a host of metaphorical meanings that suggest that the two individuals are connected by personality and affection as much as anything else. In later periods of history, we will even see great kings of the Near East refer to each other as brother, and identify as each other's counterparts. In this respect, we can see the relationship between Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep as loving counterparts to each other. When we couple this with the intimacy of their representations, the exclusion of their wives from many important scenes, and the small joking reference to Horus and Seth, what we have is a pair of men in a relationship not commonly seen in Egyptian funerary architecture. Now, the two men did have wives, and maybe they loved them very much. They both had their own children, and it depicted their families in the tomb. But the two men were clearly not as attached to their wives as they were to each other, and we should not put too much significance on the female component in their lives. After all, it was important to Egyptians of all ages and sexualities to have strong, healthy families with many children to perpetuate both their bloodline and their funerary cult. Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep were probably not the first gay men in Egyptian history, but they are certainly the first to be so easily recognizable from their funerary architecture. The only question left to answer is why did these two show up at this particular period? Why are homosexual couples not attested so explicitly in other periods? The answer is lost in the mists of time, but probably has something to do with the peculiar social circumstances of Neusere's reign. The Egyptian court was changing in its composition, as the royal family no longer monopolized the highest administrative offices. As a result, the attitudes towards social status and decorum were changing. At the same time, the king was putting a much greater emphasis on rewarding his loyal courtiers and those who groomed him, rewarding them with magnificent tombs. For all we know, Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep's relationship did not seem particularly problematic to Niusare, and he may have seen no harm 
in allowing them to be buried together in such splendour. At the same time, the tides of change which were sweeping the court probably made the matter of a homosexual couple a relatively uninteresting phenomenon. After all, they were respectably married and were so trusted by the king that both men served as his manicurists and hairdressers. Any courtier worth his salt would have kept his thoughts to himself if he was particularly concerned with their relationship at all. The truth is, we actually have very little suggestion from literary or archaeological sources that the Egyptians were particularly concerned about homosexuality one way or the other. They didn't seem particularly interested in it on a cultural level, but they didn't seem particularly bothered by it either. It was just one more aspect of the world around them, and they didn't really impact the functionality of the cosmos in any respect. A homosexual king, on the other hand, that was another matter, since that had serious implications for the royal bloodline. But as far as we can tell today, if there was ever a gay ruler, then he simply did his royal duty and assured that he had children regardless of personal taste. The hairdressers Ni Ankh Knum and Knum Hotep, together with the hairdresser-turned-vizier Tar Shepses, offer us a window into the social composition of the Egyptian court during the 5th dynasty. Their close service with the king gave them great status in life and a magnificent tomb in death, reflecting the changing world of Neusere's reign. Next week, we will discuss the king himself and the queen regent, Kenti Kaos II. Their work at Abu Sia will be the final series of monumental constructions in the necropolis before Neusere's successor moved the royal tomb back to the Saqqara area. The Fifth Dynasty continues next week. Hello folks, Dominic here with a brief epilogue. The episode you just heard was written in 2012 and recorded in 2013. In the years since, there has been new scholarship on the two men, Ni Ankh Knum and Knum Hotep. In 2016, a pair of scholars named Linda Evans and Alexandra Woods published a study of these men and their tomb. The article appeared in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology, and it discussed another hypothesis regarding Ni Ankh Knum and Knum Hotep's relationship. Evans and Woods reassessed notable images from the tomb, and they also examined some of the overlooked or lesser-known scenes. Most notably, the scholars identified a consistent pattern of mirroring. Ni Ankh Knum and Knum Hotep appear in many scenes which present an identical mirror image of each other. For example, in one scene, the two men appear riding on the backs of donkeys. The two groups face each other, and artistically, both the humans and the animals present a one-to-one mirror image. Other scenes repeat this pattern. When the two men go fishing or hunting for birds, we frequently find their actions doubling, providing a mirror of one another. The animals, likewise, pair up in a way that suggests identical matching scenes. Reviewing these images and many other aspects, Evans and Woods discussed the idea that Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep were brothers, but 
not any old brothers, they may have been identical twins. Identical twins are rare in human populations. Out of every 80 births, one birth on average produces fraternal twins, twins that are born at the same time from the same mother, but not identical. Identical twins, who are genetically matched, are extremely rare. But of course, they do happen. And it's possible that in Old Kingdom Egypt, a pair of identical twins were viewed as something quite extraordinary. Evans and Woods lay out a detailed, thorough examination of the evidence. They note how the artistic scenes frequently mirror each other, down to the smallest details. They also note that several images from this tomb are unique, or at least unique for the time period. Finally, Evans and Woods note how features of the men's careers, their job titles, and even their names speak to a parallel, matching sense of identity. In other words, the details of Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep's lives, the features they included in their tomb, point to a sense of the men as very similar, or even the same person. That might reflect a relationship of physical similarity, or even identical appearance. The argument is detailed, and I've only skimmed the surface here. In the future, I will come back to this episode and do a thorough rewrite, re-examination, and all that. For now, if you would like to read Evans and Wood's study for yourself, you can do so for free. The pair have uploaded their article, titled Further Evidence That Niank Kanum and Kanum Hotep Were Twins, on the website academia.edu. You can read it or download it for free to peruse at your leisure. It is a fascinating study. I recommend it. If you want to read the article, just follow the link in the episode description. I have also added some other titles available on Academia which cover similar topics. If you are interested in the scholarship of this pair, or queer histories in ancient Egypt, that is a good starting point to learn more. I suppose you may be wondering, has this study changed my opinion of Ni Ankh Kanum and Kanum Hotep? Sort of. In 2023, when I'm writing this epilogue, I do think their relationship is more ambiguous than I did 10 years ago. They may indeed be identical twins. But the argument for a homosexual couple still has some merit. Of course, we're never going to know for sure. We can only interpret the evidence as it appears. For now, I'll say that my assessment is uncertain. The identical twins argument is compelling, and it builds strongly on the images from their tomb. However, it's not a slam-dunk 100% solved case. I think you can make an argument either way. Academic uncertainties, and Tumblr-esque memes about roommates aside, the relationship and record of Niank Kanum and Kanum Hotep is fascinating. Whether they were lovers, identical twins, or something else, their story is a delightful one. Two men whose relationship superseded all others in their life, who cared deeply for one another, and who in many respects presented the image of a single being split in two bodies. Ultimately, the best we can say is that they loved one another. And that is a story worth telling. The tomb of Niank Kanum and Kanum Hotep is located at Saqqara, and it is open to the public. If you are visiting the Great Necropolis, 
just head down the hill from the Pyramid of Unas. Follow the paved road, or causeway, and you will pass several beautiful tombs. About halfway down the hill, and on the left, you will find Ni Ankhkanum and Kanum Hotep. Their tomb is marked as the Tomb of the Brothers, make of that what you will. The monument is beautiful, and it's often overlooked by the tour buses that flock to the Steppe Pyramid. It's a short walk, about five minutes, and it's well worth the effort. So if you're in the area, stop by and see these men for yourself. That's all from me. On to the next episode. Take care, and may the great creator god, Kunum, fashion wonderful blessings for you and those you love. 